regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. We have a long time in that conversation with data practitioners and pack the narrative journeys of the career. My guest today is Heather Wentworth, the Chief Data Officer of Accelerant, an NGI-enabling InsurTech focus on improving how risk is extreme across the insurance ecosystem. She is passionate about delivering innovative solutions and business models that improve business outcomes and drive rapidly growth. She was previously nominated as one of the top 100 insurance innovators of 2022 by Nidico. Uh, so with that introduction, Heather, it is my pleasure to chat with you on the show today. Hi, James. Great to be here. Fabulous. I, I want to start our conversation with a little bit about your early career and your, such your both personal and professional background a little bit. I did some research and I believe that you start your career as an underwriter working at uh, Liberty Mutual Insurance, which is a 1400 global leader in property and casualty insurance. Maybe can you share briefly to the audience a bit about your upbringing, your education, as well as your engines to the world insurance? Sure. So I live in Orlando, Florida now. I grew up in the Boston area. And it's funny because this all started back in the second grade. My second grade teacher gave me a computer pop-up book, which was like computers were so new back then. I'm dating myself, but a computer pop-up book that I just absolutely fell in love with. And her name was Ms. Farmer. She actually went on to work at Harbor. And so many of us kept in touch. She was that teacher you just stayed in touch with. And we would go visit her on campus and she stayed very much involved in technology. So I feel like my early roots go back to that little pop-up book in second grade. But moving on from there, my initial schooling actually focused on organizational management and design. So really how you design in organization, business models, processes, as well as just basic business knowledge with the understudy of technology. And being in the Boston area, Liberty Mutual is a great company, both for technology and for learning every aspect of insurance. And that's what I did in my 14 years at Liberty. I did start as an underwriter, and that gave me a lot of experience on the commercial side with understanding risks and what goes into underwriting good risks. They're a great company, very good discipline there. But then as well, I was part of their early technology initiatives. So where they were starting to roll out underwriting workbenches and portals and connecting data across different departments. I actually from did a a few different roles uh, around the organization to learn the business and then moved into technology. And I think looking back, that has helped me tremendously to really understand all aspects of insurance. And then from there, I did a lot of work on some early technology platforms that are still in use today. At Liberty, they've been obviously upgraded to new technologies, but really great solutions on the underwriting side. And Liberty actually, I was looking to expand their international um, division. And so beyond the, the standard lines, they went into specialty insurance, uh, which mm-hmm. was new to me all those years ago. And so I was part of the team that uh, really helped to grow LIU, is Liberty International Underwriters at the time, which focused on commercial specialty. 
So I, I spent many years traveling uh, around the world, building great technology for risk management, underwriting, claims, and a lot of program business. So the MGA space that Accelerant actually supports. And that to me was invaluable. And I think if you can find companies where you're not just, I was out there on a barge with underwriters and risk engineers developing a risk management platform for the pipelines and wells in the Gulf of Mexico. And so people think of insurance as being boring where you're just like producing an insurance policy. And I think there's this whole other side of the industry where you need good risk technology, good underwriting technology. And for me, Liberty was a place where I really got to learn a lot of that. Travel was amazing, but as life went on, I decided travel, constant international travel was getting too much. So I actually took what was the first data strategy position for Liberty's commercial markets. And that was an effort that was really foundational. Just getting the strategy in place to do even the basics of mass routine management and starting to look at data governance. And uh, so that really was a good closure for what would become the next steps in my career. So yeah, thanks for providing the highlights of your 14 year career at Liberty and, and different heads that you got a chance to wear. Maybe by zooming back into your answer, I want to follow up on that with a few questions. So you, you said you study business organizational development in college. It's okay. Yes. I assume that got, you got a holistic understanding of how business function and, and how do you, you run efficient organization? Yes. Yeah. And that really was the focus because I think a lot of the reasons why tech and data break down are yeah. because of the, the operating model and sometimes the business model, right? So the, those things need to change. So for me, being able to really focus on those things and design things really well, which was another opportunity to actually use those skills at Liberty and other companies was, to me, a real differentiator because you'll struggle, I think, to at an insurance company where, you know, yes, you can do the, the latest sizzle in technology, but a lot of it is core processing. And so that was, a, to me, one of the best backgrounds is actually knowing how to structure processes, how knowing that a left shift of things is, a, is very good. And the more things you can shift left, you get rid of a lot of waste. It's super important. Otherwise, you're just, you're automating unnecessary processes. You're probably polluting your data unnecessarily or transforming it too much maybe not capturing it well enough. So for me, that was super valuable. And then the another element of that trap is the psychology and the cultural side of things. And so to me, that foundation would serve any career path that you choose, but especially in tech and data, you really need to understand people and culture uh, yeah. beyond the operating model. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for, you know, sharing that, that, that insights. And then one, one part you also mentioned in your previous answer is that people sometimes misjudge insurance as something boring, right? Just the risk prevention. But then you talk about this innovation in technology and, and data and risk engineering that, that is actually pretty exciting. Maybe can you elaborate more on that? And how do you, you, you also talk about like how do you work on the IU platform that we could later become working manager for data strategy at Liberty Insurance. Can you elaborate on how do you actually make that transition to focus more on technology and data front, starting from the writing side? Yeah, I think for me, I had the skills to do both. And for me, it was really important to learn the business. And it's important at Liberty, it's just as background for that company, that all anyone in their tech, tech and data has that opportunity to learn the business because it's, I, I think you, you end up not really solving the right problems if you don't have that background and you maybe don't have the, your creativity is better if you have that background. 
So for me, that that was super important. And the evolution was honestly just, you know, based on where I was, it's interesting. So the insurance industry is notoriously behind in all tech and data. And even when I first started my career, I came out of school, used to using technology. And my first day on the job, I sat down and they gave me a calculator, a stack of paper, and a blue coal pencil. Now, if you don't know the history of a blue coal pencil and insurance, what they used to do is you would use the blue coal pencil to write out on a policy document. Now, I'm not ancient. Please bear in mind, this has been in the past 15 years. You would use the blue coal pencil to write out like the name, the address, put the limits on that deck page of the policy. And then that would go to a typing department. And the reason you use the blue pencil is they would type over what you're writing. It's very efficient. And then they'd run it through the copier and the copier doesn't pick up the blue. So it was, uh, so my first thing was, could we please automate this? Because this is crazy. So I kept finding all of these ways to automate and the new technology that was out there. And they basically said, okay, you're in the wrong department in the wrong role. So we're going to move you into technology where you can reshape what we're working on um, for these deliverables. So for me, that was super important. And then when I got into as an insurance in general, right? So small business has its own complexities, right? But when you're, I moved into, by the end at LIU, I was focusing on uh, marine energy and construction. So really heavy, complicated industries. And at that point, you really need to understand insurance, but you also really need to understand those industries and the risks involved and the technology involved to produce good solutions. We collectively, it was a very collaborative partnership with me and my business partners, which came easy because I was an ex-business person. And so we created just amazing risk. Most of our automation was on the risk engineering. So the underwriting was very good because risk engineering is a part of that. And then the efficiency was very good. We would go into new countries because I also did the, I did the process designs as well as the technology. So we would go into new countries with basically a blueprint and be able to just quickly shape things in really great ways and tailor it where we need it to for regionality. But I think this is where for me back then, I, there were not a lot of people that had both the tech and the, really the interest in the business. I think we see that a lot more with the generations that are entering the industry now. They, they've had iPhones since they were two. And so they're coming in. If I was tech savvy, they're coming in far more tech savvy. And so that we at prior companies, it's that same shift where they come in and they, they want to focus on the business, but the systems are so old that you can't help but want to just fix them and make it better. Thanks for sharing that importance of having both the technology aptitude as well as the, the interest in business domain, right? So that co- combination of those qualities allows you to speak both language and enable you to apply technology and data into the, the field insurance. Now, let's touch back on your career a little bit. So you spent 14 years there and up until 2012, I believe, and then after Liberty, you spent about five years as a product manager, Carmen Foster, which is another leading national property and country insurance company with a large diversified specialty platform. So can you comment briefly on this phase of your career? Yes. So the majority of my work at Crum was around transformation. So part of that transformation was implementing the product side of the new agile model, bring in product owners and that product discipline. That was one aspect. The other aspect was going through every single department and reviewing all of their processes and systems and optimizing all of those as well as some work design. So very much what I did at Liberty in just doing more of that at Crum. Now, when I was at Crum, I was also part of, so Fairfax is the parent company of Crum Enforcer and, and many other 
companies, they, they have quite a few insurance companies. They formed an innovation group across all of their companies. And so I was on that innovation group and it was really a great opportunity to collaborate and just really think differently. And it was a culture, the Kron culture and certainly Fairfax embraces innovation and in a really warm and positive way. And so what was interesting about that, so my day job, beyond my day job, it was a company where I had this crazy business idea. A friend of mine at the time was starting their own business and it was going to be traveling bike shop, traveling bicycle repair, which is everywhere now. But they were going through and setting up their Square account, right? And I was looking at the screen with them because this person was not tech savvy. And I saw start, run, grow on the Square site. The three things that they help small businesses with. And I thought to myself, where does protect? Smart run, grow, protect. So I pitched this crazy business case that I called Fair and Square. Fairbox and Square. And it was one of the most interesting things. And that's how I got started down the startup path. Actually, it inspired me to do more of that because the I was way before my time, but it was the concept of embedded insurance where what we were pitching is this, our insurance products would be white label and, and just embedded in the Square experience. And it was pretty remarkable. And we got a lot of support internally. And we were able to connect with Jack Dorsey and his team. And so while it did not, it, it was much too soon. And the company had other priorities, certainly on the square side at the time when hardware was so competitive. Um, but it was the best experience. And I look back at that now to see where embedded insurance has gone. And I, I'll share a lesson learned for me is that was one of, it really was a great experience because of the leadership at Crom and the support for that, even though it didn't take forward, go forward. But for me, the lesson out of that was how could I have pushed that? How could I have made that happen? So we did try for another company. The technology wasn't there on either side yet. So it was early. And I ended up moving on and, and we'll talk about the next part of my career. But that's one thing that my lesson out of that one is, and I would share with anyone, if you have some crazy idea, pitch it. But the other thing is I think I gave up too soon. And yeah. so that for me is a lesson that I've learned from. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that context. So just quite a recap, you said the focus here and it's really on transformation, right? Transforming the Carmen Foster uh, business into more tech uh, forward. And then you also talk about that um, initiative when you collaborate with the Square team in order to pioneer what now we know not embed insurance. Um, so it sounds like you cultivate this muscle of building new technology in house, like entrepreneurship, like building internal solution that can benefit a, a large parental organization. So those are the things that it's been really benef beneficial in this space of your career. And I imagine it's definitely like a lot of resources and incentives of the position for you to actually propose and, and, and go forward with this idea. But nevertheless, it shows potential that the organization can benefit from adopting new technologies like this. Yeah, for sure. And I think when I look at companies, and certainly when I'm thinking about decisions, obviously I'm in a much different place in my career now. When I'm evaluating solutions and direction, it's really easy, I think, for companies to say, yeah, this is great, but it's such a big unknown. And we'd really have to push it and invest a lot. And we just don't know. So we're just going to keep doing everything that we do today. And so that's a, another thing. And I think companies, certainly in the insurance industry, have become a lot better at starting to spot the future and taking the steps they need, but there, I think there's still a lot of stragglers. So, yeah. And so that's something that I think as an industry and as new talent comes in that I think will improve over time. That's, that's a bigger team about uh, adoption of 
of data uh, and insurance a little bit later on in your conversation. But Scott, just got talking back in your career again. You mentioned this at Chrome, you, I guess, incubate the interest for startups, right? Up, up to five years spent there. You moved to New York for an opportunity in 2017 as the global head of technology at both Towers Watson, which provides that driven insider solution in the areas of people recent capital. How could you describe your overall experience? So just for, so that role, so global head of technology for InnoVisc, which was a Willis Towers Watson company. And that was my first startup. And I couldn't pass up the opportunity because I just had such a great experience with innovation. And this was a real opportunity to come in. And they had, InnoVisc was, a platform that was serving managing general agents, so specialty on independent specialty underwriting companies. And it was a, a tech and data platform that was enabling digital distribution, more automated underwriting. The human would never come out of the most of the lines of business you're we writing, but we did have some that were went from 30 questions that underwriters typically ask the or the broker has to ask a customer one question to be able to quote and bind. So it was the opportunity for me to actually innovate and do so independently as something that was almost new. There was a global head of technology in place before me, and I originally joined as the leading the product and doing operational design and took over all of those plus the technology. And then ultimately did some redesign of the platform, which produced amazing results for companies like Vindati, which was one of our managing general agents. So they have an amazing online experience for their brokers and customers. And that's again, where we redesigned insurance products. So that's step one, right? And using third-party data, we were able to ask far less questions, underwrite better, and a lot faster. And so that that platform what was interesting. It's it's a great platform. We had incredible data, and in all of our data was controlled from the start, and that was key for me getting that data part so that it then then you manage your pipelines. Because that you never, you can't just pay attention at the front end and ignore all the pipelines and transformations, right? But it was for me the first time that I was really able to have a ground up design of the, the front end capture and, and first party data, which in insurance, the people who get first party data are typically only the brokers, unless you're selling direct to customers. Then Insurance companies are second party data to A, to B, to C. So it was, it was a great experience. And I think that is something that for me, that was two years leading that platform and getting it. So taking over, revising it a bit from the first attempt and then getting it to a point where they could then execute on the roadmap. Yeah, I think you're showing that basically re redesigning a whole new platform from scratch. I, I assume that there's that took a lot of goodwill and strategy thinking over there. And just one follow-up question on that. You, you said this is like your first sort of startup environment that you got a chance to work with. How was that transition for you, working from larger in corporation to a very dynamic startup environment, not just from projects, but also from culture and, and lifestyle and, and momentum of working. Yeah. I've always taken on a lot of work and, and I love work. So the intensity of a startup wasn't that different from what I would do at a big company. But the to me, the freedom, the lack of bureaucracy and everyone in it to with the same goal it being so close to the end product and delivery, right? Because you're small and our startup was small at the start. And so that was the big difference for me. 
Now, both large companies that I worked for prior to that were fantastic. They were little big companies. The cultures were really good and there was a lot of opportunity, but you did sometimes feel like you were very far removed from the true decision-making and you always have to go through so many different steps and priorities and things. So the biggest difference for me was the freedom to make choices and good choices and the ability to execute at a speed. Because when you're a startup, you can set the pace um, versus when you go to another company, every the pace of that culture is, it's you can try to move a little faster, but probably not going to get very far if the rest of the, the culture doesn't move that way. So that to me was a positive. And then being able to staff the team with a very diverse team, but like-minded in the sense of how we work and our goal for what we were trying to achieve. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that context and benefit of moving fast and really attachment with the impact. So you spent about two years with Innovis and after that, you joined Brown Brown Insurance as the senior director of data strategy. Uh, so just out of courtesy, what were some of the data initiatives that you have established? Brown & Brown is a fantastic company and they are, so as a broker, they have retail broking, wholesale, and then they also have national programs. So that, that's the specialty underwriters. And my goal, so when I look at the insurance industry, I look at the, and when I put my data lens on and where I see the most opportunity for innovation beyond underwriting is within the, the broking space. As I said before, they are, unless a carrier, an insurance company carrier is selling direct to customers, brokers are the only ones getting first party data and they get a lot of data. and. I think it's underutilized today. They, the brokerage space has made a lot of innovative improvements, but I saw it as an opportunity to work with a company that was advancing and innovating, and they had all the parts of brokerage in that, that whole front end of the value chain. And so for me, that was a real opportunity. I actually joined to help them with digital distribution and national programs. So do something very similar to what I did uh, with the startup at Willis. But shortly after that, I actually took on the role of data strategy. So rather than just the one area looking across the three areas, so working on the enterprise data strategy and then deep diving into the wholesale brokerage space. There's a lot of opportunity in the industry and Brown was really well positioned in, in all of those areas, but really well positioned for innovation. And that appealed to me. Plus they have, again, I pick companies. Yes, the opportunity and my own goals are appealing, but I do pick based on culture. A quick follow up on that. Let's say for people who are not super familiar with sort of the, the value chain of the insurance pipeline, can, can you explain? more the concept of brokerage and what, how does that fit into the overall insurance life cycle? Yes. Yeah, so I'll start by saying the value chain is a mess. It's bloated. It's inefficient. You, if anyone's ever interested, you should look up our CEO, Jeff Radke has done a number of podcasts on the state of the value chain. The customers of insurance suffer. But the way the value chain works is it starts a customer, and I'll just use the broker. Yes, you can go out and buy your own insurance. And the, obviously in the personal line space, a lot of people can buy their own auto insurance. You don't necessarily always need to talk to a broker. But certainly in commercial insurance, it's still the path that you use. You need that expertise. So the customer goes to the broker, retail broker. And then the retail broker either goes to pending an insurance carrier. So the insurance company that can offer products, a specialty underwriter, so the MGAs, right? So those are, they're not full stack insurance companies. They're borrowing someone else's 
insurance paper, but they can underwrite and produce product. So it's a similar to a, most similar to an insurance uh, carrier. And then the retailer sometimes has to go to another broker, a wholesale broker. And the wholesale broker can access different markets. So excess and surplus and things that are outside the norm. And then that wholesale broker goes to insurance companies, specialty <laughs> underwriters, and the list goes on. I will cover the whole thing, but reinsurance is involved. There are a lot of aspects to insurance that are not just, it's not just a retail broker sitting in an office, looking at what the restaurant needs for insurance, punching in a few pieces of data and getting back all the products and quotes they need. And at each point in that value chain, everyone's taking a cut. Yeah. And it's it's grown into something that we feel is far more complicated than it needs to be. Insurance used to be the really just matching risk with capital. And, and it's just become a very convoluted way of doing that. I see. Yeah, so the retail brokerage connect with this, like you said, uh, specialty MGA, the insurance carriers, as well as wholesale providers. And then from there, they can go further into more sources. And I guess the brown route is really that retail brokerage, right? When it provides solution for the customers to connect with the most relevant parties. Yeah, so Brown has the retail, but they also have their own wholesale division as well as their own specialty underwriters for a whole host of products. And that's common across many of the leading brokers. When you look at the top six and beyond, most of them have retail, wholesale, and some program business built in. Mm-hmm. The thing that makes it really challenging it, and that appeals to me in that space to an extent is these the retail brokers, when we think about the data, they just they don't just key into their system and then it APIs run and and that's not how it works. Now progress is being made there, but you're typically talking about it. And this is as well as any brokerage. This is just common practice that insurance companies have established all these portals for their products, which basically just outsources all the work to the distribution. So basically, if you're trying to get coverage, you might be keying into seven five, seven, 10 different portals, same information to get all those different quotes and products. And it's just really inefficient. And I think, and sometimes uh, for some brokers, not Brown specifically, but some brokers, just industry water cooler talk, they sacrifice keying data in their own system because it takes so long to key into all these insurance company portals. So they never capture the data themselves until they just, it's the final, this is what we're, this is what we're moving forward with. So there are a lot of opportunities in that space. And it's to me, the richest for data. I see. And I assume that as a director of data strategy, perhaps your roles really figure out answers for all these uh, questions that, that you talk about, right? The challenges of, you know. Getting... Yeah, exactly. And, and bringing them through the process of what a data strategy is. And the elements of that so that they could then go on and execute strategies that make sense for each of their divisions and then where there's cross enablement working through those. Yeah. And we'll highlight uh, all of this in the next couple of minutes. At the moment, you are the chief data officer at Accelerator Holdings. Since February of 2021, I'm correct. And Xeron is an insurance tech platform rebuilding the way that MGA, managing general agents, share and exchange risk by allowing incentives to improve outcomes for everyone. So, my question is twofold. First, can you explain in layman terms what Xeron does? And then, secondly, what does your job as the chief data officer entail? So, Accelerate, exactly as you described, and it- what I would say on that is that 
we empower these specialty underwriters. So those are those companies. They're not post-sec insurance companies, but they underwrite these products and they're really great at it. So we empower them to grow profitably based on three things that we offer through our platform. One is our analytics, which a lot of them, they can't staff data science teams. Third-party data is really expensive. They don't have whole analytics and actuarial teams, most of them. So we offer those as services. We also have experts available to them. So beyond what they have for staff or their friends in the industry, they have a team of experts in every area, underwriting, claims, technology, data, and we offer that expertise for them at no cost. And then a big one is five-year capacity commitment. So again, specialty underwriters are writing on borrowed paper because they're not full-stack insurance companies. And a lot of insurance companies go year to year. And so you never know when the ball's going to drop. And so you might be searching for a new paper uh, next year for whatever reason that insurance company decides they're not going to let you use their paper anymore. So we bring them peace of mind and let them just focus on growing their business. We do this through our platform. Um, and that is very different. And they are our focus. We don't actually do any underwriting. We don't produce our own products. We, we don't have an, un and our underwriters are there to support the, the, we call them members. So that's a very different business model than what has existed prior to Sun. And then my role as chief data officer, my focus over the past uh, year and uh, however many months has been on data intelligence which really encompasses data quality and the governance and data management side of things. Uh, because in order to produce analytics and manage portfolios, I mean, we have 90, I think we're up to 100 plus members now. That's a lot of members and we're not sitting there looking at things uh, manually. We do have fantastic humans that use their expertise for that. But our data has to be accurate. Uh, it has to be usable and available for these analytics, uh, as well as all the regulatory obligations. My focus has been on building what I'm told is the most advanced data intelligence practice, really, in the industry. And so all of our data is cataloged, defined, classified. We run, we use machine learning to run data quality checks at all points in our processes. So we've essentially, and we have 6,700 insurance data points, all of these defines in all the roles around that. And that's been very machine learning enabled, which I think is a phenomenal space for machine learning. And so that for us has been amazing. And again, going to speed, we were able to implement that very quickly. And not just the technology, but actually ingesting all of our metadata and using that, having action, actual operating model that works, producing data quality scores. So we can look at our data quality scores by region for the company as a whole. We can look at different categories of data. So what's the data quality score of our members versus uh, our claims data? And we can also look at a member data quality score. We found interesting positive correlations. Members, and I'll just throw an example, we don't have enough. Again, I wouldn't call 10 months of tracking this enough to say it's accurate for correlation purposes, but, you know, where we see data quality at 34%, we don't see as much growth in those members. Just as an example, when we see data quality scores that are 75 to 95%, you're seeing much better growth. So people underrate better when they have better data and when they operate better. And so that to me, the data quality score, yes, it's telling us we didn't mangle anything in transformation and the data is what it should be, and we have all that proprietary rules and knowledge built in, plus what the machine can look at, which is phenomenal. But we've also been able to detect things that just haven't 
come up yet that humans aren't seeing in insurance. Absolutely. Thanks for giving an overview of the platform as well as the, the major responsibility Joro as a chief data officer at XR. And then I definitely want to double down on, on some of the, the details uh, related to data for, for the technical audience who cares more about how you, know, you actually do it. As you mentioned already, that meant one of the key benefits of a certain platform is the analytics component, right? The platform have power connection across the entire insurance value chain with analytics from like thousands, more than 6,000 fields, even correct. And you talk about using machine learning to detect data quality issues. So can you maybe give some examples of what are some of the data quality issues that you might encounter when you have to incorporate third-party data into the platform. And, and from that, you also talk about using machine to detect this, detect and fix this quality issue. Can, maybe can you share some of the high-level techniques that's been most powerful to do? Yeah, sure. Some of the examples are as basic as some, you can't, so when you're receiving like data that comes into us from our members, we can, there, there is a lot of third party data out there. So you can verify address information pretty easily. And there's thousands of sources out there. Other data points are for their third party data sources don't exist. Um, so what's been really helpful for us, and I'll use an example as a name field, right? So we had a name, we obviously the insured name comes to us, right? And so maybe it's ABC company or maybe it's Heather Wentworth or something, but it's it's text field. And so you could never put edits on what edits are you going to build into that. You can make sure that you're getting text, but to be able to verify that you can, there, there are sources out there, but when you're writing globally, you would need so many sources. And one of the things that the machine learning is able to do for us is around the profiling. So we had an example where one of our members accidentally sent policy number in the name field. So instead of seeing ABC company, we were seeing AC, AC7 dash, blah, 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 dash. And so rather than ingest that, send, send it all downstream in our system and then start messing up all of our reports, what is this company? It was policy number. And the mistake was that, as it turned out, they had a new administrative assistant who was keying data in and they didn't have controls in their front end system. And the person didn't know and they were keying along mm-hmm. and they were keying policy number over the name into this other system. And that's what got to us. But our machine learning picked it up and said, this shape is different and the behavior is different. Because we're used to seeing, so it looks at shape, it looks at behavior, and we're used to seeing things grouped. Like maybe you have five things for one name. We were now seeing like five different numbers, right? So the machine learning picked up things that probably would be difficult to code for, not impossible. And it knew that it was policy number because it could look across the other fields in the database and say, oh, this is actually policy number. So. That's something where, you know, in that situation, the name just wasn't there. So it's not something that the machine could just adjust the schema and move on. So that is one. And then I'll, I'll give you one other example. One of the biggest industry issues that we have is claims leakage. So estimated to be, I don't remember the consulting for $30 billion a year issue for the industry, claims leakage. And one part of that is matching is duplicate claims and matching claims and policies and and not having duplicate claims coming through. It messes up your reserving and payments, everything. And so what we actually, what we started um, to detect because we, and again, this is something that happens throughout the industry, um, but we work with a lot of third-party companies. And what we quickly detected through all of this was they sometimes alter the policy number to fit their own system. Sometimes that means they trim digits. Sometimes they add digits. And you can code around it. But there are so many variations with a platform like ours 
And so that's something that we've solved for. And I always think back to other companies and just how much this is talked about in the industry. And it's, it's really not a case of some mystery happening. It is this third-party company have the constraint in their system and they have to alter your number. And then they're trying to match it back. And I think when I look at some of the issues with Lloyd's of London data, payment settlements and things like that, I see machine learning as being a huge advantage both in the claim space and payment space, anywhere that we are using data beyond data quality management, integrating third-party data. Absolutely. Thanks, Paul. It's explaining you know, some of the details we did acquire here now. Those examples and how they manifest themselves into the, the pipeline, how machine can be a beneficial solution to address them. So you mentioned the concept of you know, data intelligence in your previous answer. And so talk about how it's providing the best data intelligence practice in the industry. So what advice could you give to data-driven organization? looking to move from just more defensive data governance to proactive data intelligence? Yeah, I would say I, I think companies are, when they're starting out, especially if they start out unfunded, first thing I would say is companies need to fund data intelligence and not data governance. They will get further, much faster. And it's so important. And I don't want to say it's easy, but it's easier than trying to do data governance the old way. And there's not a tech constraint for why companies couldn't move to data intelligence from the beginning. I think a lot of times, I think that consulting firms are behind a little bit in what they coach companies on. Because a lot of companies don't want to make the investment. So they start with 35 data stewards. And they're using Excel and they're going to start by writing out what all the business terms mean. Five years later, they have an Excel glossary, basically the Oxford dictionary of one department. And they've not made progress. So things get shut down because it wasn't useful. And it doesn't build a data-driven culture because who wants to leave their day job and write the Oxford dictionary of insurance? Nobody. So there are ways around that. We bought a lot of the insurance terms, and then we tailored them. We didn't spend five years. We spent five minutes. And it's implementing the technology, connecting it, whether you're on legacy or not. The technology has advanced so much. But again, I think that my advice would be to not, you're not going to promote, I don't think a data-driven culture can be promoted by making people leave their day jobs and fill out Excel spreadsheets. I think it, has to be a conscious investment in data intelligence technology that will drive really all of the organizational goals forward much faster and better and make a lot of people very happy. I've never met a business person that didn't want better data in using data. So, And I think there's this notion that insurance doesn't want to use data, and I've not seen that to be true. Yeah, totally. That makes a lot of sense. And another thing that I'm I assume it's also important for this company to push for data intelligence, just having the right data talent in, in the companies, right? So hiring the relevant folks and, and things like that. I assume a joker of excellence as well as your previous role, you, you have to build teams and hire relevant data talents. Do you have any sort of practices or, or insights on how to hire data practitioners into your team and make, make the best use of them? Yeah. And I think there's two parts that I would say for insurance. One is it's tough to find people who understand data intelligence in the world, right? And I would say it's worth finding them or partnering them with someone if you can find them and they can partner them with someone. But I think there is this mix of if you can attract the talent, fantastic. Some of it has to be homegrown. So our data product owners, I converted on an underwriter, a claims handler, a financial analyst, and a privacy regulation, regulatory and compliance person who really, they, they knew all of that and they were very tech savvy and they make 
great data product owners, which is like what some people call stewards, but it's a slightly different role. And then it's just teaching them the the data. And then you cover a lot more ground that way too, because you don't have 36 inexperienced people trying to do data. You can really focus. And for us, we moved a lot faster. We broke records for what we implemented. I'm told by independent consulting firms and some of our tech partners, it takes some companies, most companies, five years to implement what we did in a very short time. Yeah. So you have having that sort of domain expertise and, and from the folks already sort of tech savvy can, can pick up a skill on data science analytics and then move forward from there, right? Yes. Now, sort of looking back at your broader career, you spent at this point more than 20 years in, in insurance and there's just different jobs. Uh, how, how do you see as the different ways that insurance firms can lead their way into insurance transformation from contributing and, and being data-driven? Uh, and yeah, just to contact the questions to look at the broad industry and, and how they can uh, not only just be tech savvy, but also data savvy, do what Accelerant can do. Yeah, I think... Again, it is delivering, it's not enough to deliver technology. A lot of companies just focus on get that next system out there. And I think they do need to focus on the data and it is a different discipline. I think a lot of blame has been put on the culture of insurance and a lot of these companies, people don't want to change. And as I said earlier, I don't think that's the case. I think what we're seeing in the industry is that a lot of people are leaving firms for more tech-enabled firms, more data-driven firms like Accelerant. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think companies need to not just deliver technology, deliver really great technology and data solutions and more of it. So more investment there. I think a lot of focus goes towards efficiency and a think at some point you could probably draw the line and say we're efficient enough can we underwrite better can we do claims better and you're going to have happier people and i think that to me is the shift because the pandemic for all its faults it made society very sex savvy and yeah. i think that has been a certainly an accelerator for insurance to pave the way for innovation Absolutely. Thanks for providing that insight and encapsulate what we need to do to going through this transformation period. So I want to round up our main conversation on a personal note. So you have been a volunteer facilitator for the organization Girls to Code for several years. As a role model yourself, what have you learned personally about the ways to engage more women in technical fields? To encourage them to pursue something that interests them. So in what I found, no matter what age, but certainly I'll take the fourth graders. Some love fashion. Some love cartoons. Some love games. And even at that young age, I don't think it changes when you're an adult. Find something that... Find a field that really interests you and look at the tech and data. And that, for me, that's obviously been my path. Right? I'm an insurance geek. But I think also what I've seen with Girls Who Code is when it is something that's really interesting to them, the creativity is better, the engagement is better, and they're able to, there are no boundaries because they want to be doing it. And it's, again, they're innovative. And I think most people do like to innovate and create their own things. Yeah, that made a lot of sense and a very optimistic message uh, to be out there. So, Heather, this for our conversation, I want to move into the panel closing segment, in which I'm going to ask you three rapid-fire questions and then you can provide you know, quick answers for the listeners. Number one, uh, name three people in the broader data community whose work you admire. Okay, number one, Jamak Dagani, uh, best known for Data Mesh. Number two, Cassie Kazakov, most known for pushing decision intelligence. 
at Google. And I will throw in Allie K. Miller, formerly of Amazon and now doing, I think, private equity or something in that space who I think has done amazing things for AI and is an incredible role model for women of all ages. Yeah, those are all very big female influencers in, in, in the space that I'm sure a lot of you have heard of and, and it's worth following them. Number two, the name one book that you would recommend for people to cultivate a data-driven mindset. Honey, again, I think the data mesh, the delivering data-driven value at scale is mm -hmm. an incredibly powerful book. And if you're just starting out, skip all the old data governance books and all the old data strategy books. And I think pick up with that one, even if you don't adopt mesh or there are so many great concepts in there uh, that I think are, are worth reading. It's also one of the one of the later ones that I, I focus on and that I've had my team reading as we've gone through this journey. So that would be my recommendation. And well, actually, on that note, we talk about data mesh. Just out of curiosity, maybe can you define that term real quick and, and how do you think about incorporating that into Acceleron? Because uh, the reason for the context, I, I definitely read a lot of articles about data mesh in general and just out of curiosity, how is that actually being put in practice? Yeah. If I get sum it up in two ways, it's data as a product and federated governance. So being able to connect and share data instead of command and control at the center and everything has to be in one spot. There are much better ways of doing it. And actually, that book has a great example of how Spotify does it. And I think that's it's really powerful stuff. And so I think it's very different than the traditional model of everything gets in the one warehouse that's owned by the one group. And it's just really, you know, the data never comes together the way it should. And the data products are not always reusable because you go off into silos, right? So be able to reuse your data sets in any, anything that falls under data products, I think is, is important for that. It companies about a lot of success and company, you'll see data mess is also written about a lot. I think if companies don't have data intelligence in place, so the ability, what I described earlier, to be able to look at any sources and know all your data, how it's defined and control the rules and have that, you know, the marketplace of data products. If you don't have that and you're trying to do data mesh, I think it would be really challenging. Yeah. Thanks for providing that definition. Finally, imagine that you can send out a single message to all the early career underwriters on LinkedIn. What could you say? I would encourage them to, we can't always control the first places where we start our career, but I would encourage that if they have the choice to work for a tech-enabled company and learn the, the underwriting to me is the most important part of insurance. Not that the customer is not important, but underwriting is the best service to the customer and what drives profitability and risk avoidance for the industry. So I would say definitely try to position yourself, um, not just at a, I would say a modern company where diversity is valued, where it's a modern culture and they're very tech forward. You'll get the same benefits of learning underwriting and you'll be part of something, I think, that's very innovative. Perfect. I think that's a brilliant way to end our conversation. So Heather, I really enjoyed chatting with you today, learning about your early career, starting in Boston, getting into the insurance field at Liberty Mutual, John, 14 years then, starting as an underwriter, moving into responsibility, job various roles at different organizations like Crumman Foster. Innovis, Brown currently at Accident Holdings. I think we also talk a lot about various technical threats on how each one company can become tech and data savvy, how to rebuild platform from scratch. What's the insurance valuations look like? The challenges of working with data quality issues in the insurance context, moving from data governance to data intelligence, different ways for insurance firms to undergo transformation as well as how to be a role model for a woman in technical field. So I'll be sure to include everything that we discussed today in your show notes as our listeners can have a chance to take a look. 
learn more about look, the exciting work that you've been doing at Exeter and then you can follow you and, and learn more ways that you have been popularized some of these data terminology for them. Yeah, so I uh, really enjoyed our conversation and I hope you have a great rest of your day. It was a pleasure, Andrew, and as well. Thanks, Chips. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.